This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. So welcome to today's mini masterclass with my friend Scott Gardner. Scott uh, has done one of our masterclasses in the past and he's a He's pretty much one of my contemporaries. I think when was your first book out, Scott? Uh, 2000. Yeah, so my first book was a couple of years before that. But, yeah, we I think we've kind of trod the same, many of the same paths, haven't we? As, as yeah, yeah, well, I, I I, yeah, I certainly look up to you in terms of um, content and frankness and the style uh, and always have, like, I... I don't want to piss in your pocket, but you've always been uh, a really strong voice in YA and uh, it's been nice to have you on my side. <laughs> well, it's very kind of you to say so. I mean, I, I as nice as that is, I mean, I, I'm not sure that I entirely agree with you about a couple of things, you know, not least of all the, perhaps the, the strength of my voice at times. I would say that I've maybe been a little bit cowardly, but we'll we can come back to that um, <laughs> because really what, what we get, what Scott and I were kind of wondering what we're going to talk about today. And we, we mulled over a few things, but because we're pretty much contemporaries in the YA scene and we've seen a lot of changes in the, in the young adult and middle grade scene over the last few years, um, especially in terms of writing for boys and, and young men. I mean, am I, I don't know about you, Scott, but my first, first ever public speaking gig was at the CBC conference on, I remember the topic and I, I wouldn't even know how I would handle it now, but it would be very different. I think it was masculinist writing. Masculinist. Yeah. That was the term they gave me. And it was, it was um, Glyn Parry who of course, you know, in Glyn's usual way managed to say some stuff that upset librarians, um, which is, you know, his, <laughs> his MO and uh, Glyn uh, and Nick Earls and myself. Um, so yeah, masculinist writing, but that was the time of, um, you know, John Marsden was, was doing stuff about boys, but writing, writing for boys. But I think it was, um, it was the guy who did the big, uh, James Maloney, I think. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, so I guess we, let's, why don't we talk about some of that stuff, the kind of hyper-realism and hyper-masculine writing and that sort of thing and how it might've changed over the. The years has your has your personal approach to writing for young men changed in the last couple of decades? Do you think? I don't think that it has, in essence. Although I'm much more conscious of context now than I used to be. I was keen on expressing myself like I heard young men speak when I was writing, and I've since realised that that's a pretty small sample, like my pool that I'm drawing from is a pretty small sample and that it might not be an authentic voice for a great swath of the population. It might just be the young people that are around me that I'm imitating on the page here. So having seen more of the world and having met a whole lot more young people from a variety of backgrounds, I realised that my tendency was towards Bogan illiterates 
because they were the young people that I spent most of my time with. And that was a little bit to do with the socioeconomic situation that I grew up in, in Gippsland in Eastern Victoria. Um, it's the coal winning area. It's the place where they produce the electricity that drives Melbourne or in the olden days when it was still brown coal anyway, uh, things are changing. And socioeconomically, it's pretty rough and ready. It's the land of the Collingwood neck tattoo. Uh, and in that respect, it's probably given me a bit of a uh, an unrealistic appraisal of what young people are like and what they speak like and how they act and the sorts of things that they think are important. So over time, getting to visit some very opulent schools and speak with really erudite and um, intelligent young people, I've had my idea of what a young person is challenged. I think that that has influenced my writing. I think that the characters, the men, the young men have become softer and a little more aware, self-aware. And I think that the young women that I write about now are far more nuanced and also uh, confident and a bit more fearless than I ever wrote in the early days. I mean, in, in, the, in those early days that when we were writing YA, I don't know about you, but I, I kind of saw a number of people who were at the tail, I won't name names, a number of very prominent and, and highly regarded young adult authors who were, I saw, when I'd read their work, I'd kind of cringe a little bit. I'd think, no, this sounds like a 60-year-old guy trying to sound like a teenager. And mm. it felt like they'd kind of lost touch. Yes. And speaking for myself, I kind of feel like I've reached that point now where I, I don't know if I'll really launch into another YA. How about yourself? I mean, you've, you've been, you were teaching quite recently or relatively recently, so I suppose your voice may be a little fresher than, than, than mine would be, but... Are there ways to still tell compelling YA stories without sounding like, hey, kids, it's groovy, you know, sound like a youth pastor on... on <laughs> yeah, that's a nice picture. <laughs> oh, absolutely, yeah. I think that you drill down to the core of the human experience and nothing has changed. Mm. Working with young people, it was working with young people that gave me the confidence to write for young people because... I realised that the sorts of things they were dealing with on a daily basis weren't that dissimilar from my experience of being a youth. The drugs were different and the toys were different. Um, the times were different, but the core understandings that come with uh, questions that you ask yourself like, uh, am I gay? Will I ever be loved? Um, do I have a place in the world? Those things are universal. And I think that they not only get past the idea of uh, gentrification, they, they end up being impervious to culture as well. I think that those ideas can be reframed in lots of different cultures and still come out the same thing. We're still asking the same questions. But certainly, well, yeah, I, I think I'd take your point. I, I just would maybe push back a little bit on that with this question. Do you think that, you know, you, you, I guess you're talking about core values, if you want to use that term, you know, the, the, not in a core values sociological sense, but, you know, the core things that you're trying to explore in your writing, you know, belonging and all those things. Yes. But then there are those other things that have been dated quite badly. And, I, and you know, we, this may get a little graphic, but um, 
you know, pornography, for example, and the fact that, you know, one of those core questions you ask is, let's say a young man or a young woman, but let's, let's stick with young men for now. One of those core questions is, I've got these feelings, I'm not quite sure where they come from, not sure really how to express them, and I don't really know what to do once the opportunity comes to express them. Yeah. Um, is it okay to express them? All those sorts of questions. When you and I were growing up, the nature of information available for us was very different from what's readily available with three or four strokes of a, of a keyboard now. Do you have to stroke your keyboard to find them? <laughs> Choice of words, man. <laughs> I'm a writer. I'm, uh, I choose my words very carefully. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, what, what do you make of that? I mean, are they, are they just subsets of what, the things you just described or, or do you think they're things that need to be addressed in a completely new way now that we're writing in a different age? I think the questions are still the same. I think, like you suggest, the information that young people can access is so much more graphic and so much more um, there's no room for imagination huh. and that means that some of the crap ideas about what it's like being a young man are propagated really readily through porn the sorts of things that constitute a, a loving sexual relationship if you only get your information from porn, you're going to end up with a really distorted idea of what life is like. So for young men, the challenge is different, but it's the same uh, core again that they're trying to explore. Is my sexuality normal? Uh, What is acceptable? Where are the boundaries? Um, And how is it best that I perform? Mm. And yeah, for us, I guess the information was much more hard won. Now, yeah, a couple of strokes, let's say strokes, on your phone screen and you're in uh, the darkest corner of the internet, just like that. And I think that that presents problems for masculinity generally, but I think it presents problems for us as authors because we need to acknowledge that that's a reality that a lot of young people are dealing with. But there are lots of young people, and this is one of the challenges that I think is particularly pertinent for writers of young adult literature is that we don't necessarily want to explore that with them, but we, we've got to acknowledge that it's how they begin to understand their self-worth. I mean, for me, it's not just about that either. I mean, it's, it's even more simple things. Well, I guess this sort of feeds back into your original point that we're talking about the same core things it's just nuancing and window dressing. But my second book relied on people um, finding 50 cents to put in a payphone so they could call mum and let them know they were okay. Um, <laughs> my first book did the same. <laughs> right. And I've just, I've just finished judging a fairly, you know, a fairly significant young adult award and I, I noticed that there were a few that just go back unapologetically back to the 70s and 80s and I have to wonder whether the reason they're doing that is because trying to it's just another level of complexity to try and navigate as a writer when and someone's entire life a young person's entire life effectively is lived out on their phone and it's changed the way we format the page and it's changed the way that relationships work and the even the um the original complication that kicks off a, a story can be based around that how do you think yeah. we navigate that 
Uh, I think we have to invest quite a bit of due diligence. I'm not a fan of text speak. Um, and, yet, <laughs> and yet I feel it awful. impinging on the way that we proclaim authenticity in that space. If we're writing for young people and that's the domain, then surely being respectful, we should be using text speak and perhaps it's just in moderation. Um, when we can make sense of it still, but um, it's kind of um, paying lip service to it, I suppose, rather than make, setting it as the uh, the only way we communicate. From a from a technical perspective, as a writer, um, do you feel it's it's incumbent on us to skate close to a a verbatim representation of what's been said without actually going there? Because I mean, if you tried to write the way the average what is the average, but the average 14-year-old speaks, it's not going to look terribly easy to read on the page, is it? Oh, no, that's right. Uh, and that's always the case, isn't it? Like I am driven mad by well-intentioned authors using slang and um, diction from other accents and that sort of thing to the point where it's distracting, I find that really quite laborious. And I think that writing in text speak or completely kowtowing to the adolescent use of language is a bit like that. It's, well, it's it can be quite jarring and distracting. It's probably a bit, it's sort of a, a clumsy example or clumsy analogy would be like walking into a workshop of year 10 students wearing a cap backwards. Precisely. <laughs> which which I, I, I don't know if you've ever done that. I, I haven't. But I've actually worn my hat back, uh, backwards in a workshop, but only so that I could fit PPE. And then it stayed <laughs> on like that. And yeah. they, were, they were making comments about it. So I decided to take it off completely. It's better <laughs> just having a bald head. <laughs> I, I was saying to someone the other day that, well, I said it to you earlier, but I said it to someone else as well, that back when when we started writing, it, it's a term that they hate, but the gatekeepers were fairly uh, active, let's say. Mm. And I remember having a conversation with Melissa Lukashenko, who is a, an Indigenous writer who, whose first books came out around about the same time as ours. And she told me, I noticed that she she dropped the F-bomb. I'm going to use that kind of sanitised term because we're trying to be PG-13 here. But um, she, her characters dropped the F-bomb fairly frequently. And I had been told pretty clearly by my publisher, don't do that. It's going to mean that the teacher librarians won't stock your book. But I, I remember talking to Melissa about this and she said that she found herself in a little bit of a scrape as, a, as an Indigenous writer because... She said she wanted to be accurate, rep, accurate, accurately representing the way that her her family and, and and social group spoke. But at the same time, she didn't want to immediately preclude it from being included on reading lists or whatever. So she mm. she had a unique kind of perspective on that. And it was a very long time ago, so I hope I haven't misquoted the the way it was it was put to me. But I, my, that's my recollection of it. Um, but for me, it was never any question, you know, and uh, I just didn't use those words. And I think I've dropped the F-bomb maybe if, uh, my last last book, maybe a couple more than usual, but I've never dropped the C-bomb. Whereas now when I start reading these YA, this YA stuff, I'm seeing some pretty, um, pretty fruity language in there. Mm. 
What's your take on all that? Do you just let go with both barrels and just do it? Or how do you approach it? Uh, I guess it's very much the domain of the character. And some of the characters that I have written have been particularly sweary and some have been um, very polite. And I let them drive the story in that respect in terms of content. I think that it's a balancing act. Yes, you can limit the exposure of your book by including pretty graphic street language or content. But I feel like you risk being inauthentic if you don't at least doff your hat to it. So there has to be a middle ground somewhere and we find the middle ground by negotiating with publishers. I've used the C-bomb in three books and it's never actually made it through the editing process. Right. It's always been edited out. Um, well, those sorts of words, sorry to interrupt, but those, those sorts of words in my experience always look harsher on the page and they sound when spoken, don't they? Oh, absolutely. They're like a freaking axe leaping from the page to split you in the forehead. And I love that about them and I feel like that's the way I use them in conversation. And I feel, well, no, it's actually, it's a little bit. Um, oh, now come on, Scott. I know you. I know that's not quite <laughs> if, if I was to call someone the C-bomb, uh, it's either a term of endearment or the peak of absolute annoyance. <laughs> and uh, I think it needs to be which used. Which one do you? Which one do you use when you say it to me? <laughs> well, this is the thing. You, you have to um, interpret that yourself. Yeah, I mean, I remember with my with one of my books, I I had I'd noticed that Tim Winton when he wrote the F bomb, he he put F U C K E N, and that was how he spelt it, and it shortened it and made it kind of roll off the tongue a little bit more easily. It didn't look as obvious in the page. So when I wrote a book where I had characters, a short story where I had characters speak represented in a very verbatim way, I just put F-C-K-N and it was scattered throughout. And I thought that's a nice, easy way of peppering the language without it looking. And even then my editor came back and said, nah, see, it still looks too strong. When you read it aloud, it sounds fine, but it looks too strong. So I end up going with F-R-G-G-N, friggin'. Now, I know that no self-respecting 14-year-old uses that word, but on the page it kind of worked. But I don't But that was almost 10, that, well, that was 10 years ago, more than 10 yeah, years ago. Would you, would you do the same now? I don't know. I, I don't know. Would, should I? <laughs> or would I just, uh, just use the word and go for it? Yeah, I think it's use the word and go for it time. And I think you're guided a little bit by the... Um, intensity and how connected your publishing team are. Mm. I feel like in that respect, they are the first of the gatekeepers. Mm. They have a list that they're trying to develop. They have content that they would like to see uh, concurrent with their list. And sometimes the use of street language is something that makes it feel like you are heading in the direction that their list is heading. It's cutting edge, it's contemporary, it's uh, streetwise, it's alive and animated with the way young people use the language. Now, other times they'll have a sense, well, we're actually marketing to librarians 
in religious schools. And if that is where our major pitch is, then we want to try and avoid the use of street language wherever possible. Have you ever had a TL say to you, that's not an accurate rep representation of our, how our students speak? Because I've had that conversation to which yes. my reply simply had to be, well, you, you need to get out and do more playground duty because I've got yeah. some news for you, right? Yeah, that's, that's probably the best response too. I did have a TL tell me at the very start of a talk that they'd had to ban one of my books from the library because a 16-year-old kid had taken it home and read a part aloud to his parents. It was a part where the um, main protagonist, Daniel, thinks he can hear his sister masturbating through the wall and his response to the situation was to bury his, his head and try not to gag um, and that would be a fairly a typical response to a fairly typical situation um, and he could the, the student couldn't work out what was going on so he took the passage to his parents and uh, the mum and dad reacted really badly and they had to take the book off the shelves um, it felt at the time like they'd totally missed the boat like he was winding them up I'm quite sure of that that he knew exactly what was going on but was trying to put the situation, put the awkwardness in the situation onto them. And I think it worked. <laughs> They're right. Did, um, was their main concern that there was a character masturbating or was it his reaction to hearing that that they were most offended by? No, it was the character masturbating that they were offended by. Oh, yeah, because that never happened, right? No, that's right. Well, it was a female masturbating and that is uh, abhorrent. Or right, what, right. in the early part of our careers, that was the edge of the taboo. Now it's not only acceptable, it's celebrated because, well, yeah, me too. Well, I remember when I, I, <laughs> I was promoting my book that was specifically about puberty and sex and, and it, I, 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 it really needs an update because a lot of the stuff that we discussed earlier, you know, the pornography stuff, that it doesn't, it isn't really relevant in many ways anymore. But anyway, the point, the point I'm making is that when I was promoting this book, I went to a very large private school somewhere, boys school, and I, I said to these year five and six boys, um, you know, we, we kind of think about sex as being something that happens, you know, somewhere else and, you know, with, to strangers, I said, but it might surprise all of you to learn that your parents have all had sex at least once. <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the deputy head came to me afterwards and said, look, great talk, you know, the boys loved it, fantastic. Just we'd really prefer you didn't put the image in their mind of their parents having sex. <laughs> <laughs> and I was thinking, what? Well, so apparently, immaculate conceptions big around the northern suburbs. <laughs> apparently so. <laughs> that that fairly hits the nail on the head, though, doesn't it? That sense of when is it the right time, and when, it, and, and that's so variable. When, when it's the right time to have discussions like that is so variable that as writers of young adult literature, while we feel like it's fair game to write about that stuff, there are going to be people who are offended regardless of how we present it and when we present it and what age the person is when they're reading it. They could be a sheltered 18-year-old and find offence in masturbation or they could be a... Um, teen who's already had a child um, who knows more about sex than anyone would like to give them credit for. Um, we're, we're trying to pitch a story for that audience and it's a pretty diverse audience. 
There's a, a book that I, I recommend that I, I read recently called Invisible Boys by Holden Shepherd. Um, and it's, it's, I don't know how autobiographical it is, but I, I know that there's an element of, um, of that to it, or I suspect there is. But uh, it's about a, a, a bunch of young men, high school age young men uh, in Geraldton, who are all discovering their homosexuality. And um, you know, somebody who started reading it said, oh, yeah, I wasn't terribly comfortable with the depictions of him masturbating in front of the camera to, um, to buff young guys, in front of the computer to buff young guys. And I said, well, hold my beer because the, <laughs> the, the, the bit in the third act where he actually describes the first time you have gay sex is going to really rock your world. And some of the conversations that I've had with people about that book is like, oh, you know, does anyone need that? But, but I mean, I guess the the do-gooder in me goes, is there going to be a boy out there who reads that and goes, yeah, okay, so, you know, this this is reflecting who I think I am. I mean, is that a, that's really a conversation that needs to be had with that writer, though, maybe. I don't know. Well, if that writer has believed that, then I think it's authentic. Mm. I think that if they're... Well, they're only drawing from their own experience and they must have been young people at some stage uh, and they must have asked questions of themselves and of others that were difficult to answer or that they didn't find reflected in the fiction or material that they were reading, hence the feeling like you need to write about it. And, yeah. I think you and I have both presented at, um, at high schools in Geraldton and probably would both acknowledge that coming out in Geraldton might be a fairly tricky journey. Sure. Yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt that for a moment. Yeah. Well, um, that is Holden's experience from what I can tell. And um, yeah. if anyone's interested, it's a book called Invisible Boys by Holden Shepherd. It's a pretty gritty read, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a good one. We've kind of strayed way off what we started talking about, which was about engaging young men, although always we've sort of strayed. We haven't really, have we? We're still on the golf course. We're just in the rough a little bit. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned in your text to me about what we could talk about realism and hyper masculinity and you mm. are we allowed to name the the authors that you were thinking of oh sure yeah, yeah i'm okay. sure we're talking about matthew Riley, right as just yeah. as, as an example not the only example but an example yeah uh so to me i understand why young men particularly are attracted to matthew Riley's work uh but from my perspective, and even when I project my 15-year-old perspective into his work, I find that there's nothing of substance. It's just mice in a maze, mm. cutting mice. I don't feel like there's enough emotional depth to the characters for me to engage with the story. And, and I understand that that particular genre that he writes for that's not a highly prized commodity, the idea of there being emotional depth to a character. And I wonder if that reflects about, um, I mean, they are just fun rides, those books. Hmm. And maybe... They don't pretend to be anything more, though, do they? No, no, that's exactly right. And maybe I'm trying to read into it. Maybe I want to be as popular as Matthew Riley, but I want to write stuff that has substance for me. And, and this, yeah, well, this, I mean, this is a, a conundrum that we've all faced, those of us who consider ourselves to, you know, want to be 
more literary writers than, than genre writers. We want both those things. We want the huge, we want the massive sales, but we also want to be able to write authentically and from the heart. Yes. Um, I don't know, can, is somebody the other day suggested to me that that only happens once in a generation. And if you aren't that one person, then give up because it ain't going to happen to you. There's only room <laughs> in the market for one person. I guess, well, who would we be talking about in our world? Maybe Marcus Zusak or someone like that who, who gets the commercial success along with the, you know. He has only ever been himself in writing. Correct. Yeah. I don't feel like he has written for a genre or anything other than the things that please him. And uh, that's, yeah, I agree, a powerful and very rare position to be in. Well, I think it's um, important that if, if you are one of those people who does write genre, I mean, I know we kind of laugh about certain things, but at the end of the day, people like Bryce Courtney, he was unapologetic about this. He, I think it was Bryce Courtney who said, I don't write books, I write Christmas gifts. Yeah. <laughs> Marketing genius, yeah. Scott Gardner, it's always a pleasure to have a chat with you and um, let's talk again very soon. Thank you, James. I look forward to it, mate. Well, cheers, mate.